When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, Episode 73, The Slow Erosion Speeds Up. The Normans have landed, and all of the land of what we now call England is in the hands of William the Conqueror, or William I, the Duke of Normandy. He will be crowned on Christmas Day, starting the road for England as a new dynasty and as a new day dawns. The Welsh, meanwhile, once again are on the outside of this, looking back with concern and possibly fear, especially if you're a member of the gentry. The Normans are an aggressive lot. They had invaded Francia as Vikings at the beginning of the 10th century, setting themselves up as a duchy by 911. They may have paid homage to the king of France, but they were still off on their own. In 1042, for example, they invaded Italy, coming into conflict with the old empire based in Constantinople, who still sought to influence the former Roman western half of the, at this stage. They were a force to be reckoned with, and now they were proving it once again in England. In the process of this invasion, it is argued originally led by about 8,000 noblemen of Norman birth, the removal of Saxon landholdings and the leadership gathered pace throughout all of the 1060s after the conquest. Basically, from 1066 to 1072, the entire shape of the nobility in England changed dramatically, from one of Saxon to one of Norman control. The English were pacifying through fierce intervention and castle building, something the Normans were very good at, and had been using to stop revolts in France. Once the Normans had control of the English population, so much so that William spent almost all of his remaining years in France, they then turned to the west and the north and contemplated how to turn against their Celtic neighbors who had survived the Saxons and the Vikings to this point. This must have eaten at the Welsh kings. Since the days of Penda, the Welsh had struggled, and we have chronicled often about their issues with self-mastery in the face of opposition both inside and outside of their kingdoms. Even under Griffith, there was always an undercurrent that things were on the brink. 
Peace was short-lived in the Welsh kingdoms, from Gildas to the Normans. This was not going to change now. With the defeat of Godwinson, William then handed his lands in Hereford and Wessex to William Fitzosborne. Fitzosborne was a relative of William's and a close advisor to the king. Like most of the Norman nobility, he was rewarded with lands in England after the conquest. In fact, much of the Norman nobility only got involved because of the rewards that would come afterwards. And obviously, with the elimination of the Saxon nobility, there was much to be gained in this situation. Uh, Probably most interestingly is the fact that William then turned most of his more capable and best advisors on to defending the borders of, of England against Wales. And I think that's something that we have to look at and consider when we look at this situation is that both the most aggressive and the most successful generals were turned this way. Fitz Osborne himself was a very good commander, a very structured commander, someone who was able to plan, plot, and prepare for what was to come. And that is something you can't just manufacture. You have to have these people in place. In fact, Fitzosborne would establish the first stone castle in Wales. He created this at Chepstow and laid the foundation in 1067 for the main tower. This positioning of the Norman lord in the south let the Welsh know things were about to become very difficult. Fitzosborne was a very capable leader and, as we said, would appear to have set up his earldom even before he ended up in conflict in a way that set it as a staging post for what was to come. The Normans were not going to be happy with just holding on to the land that they had. They consistently pushed at every juncture from this point for at least the next 50 years into other parts of the United Kingdom and the British Isles in general, including Ireland. They would continue to try and take all of Britain and try and take all of Ireland into their sphere of influence one way or the other. And so this was the staging point for Wales, but there were certainly other places which they were doing similarly. They invaded Scotland later. They would again invade Ireland and would continue to seek to try and take over Ireland throughout all of the Norman and Plantagenet era. This was an agenda item for them. But William would not only set up Fitzosborne, he would also position other loyalists to him in positions of power along the Welsh border. Roger of Montgomery and Hugh the Fat, as he will be referred to, or Hugh of uh, Chesser, will be positioned in various positions north and central of the Welsh border. And basically, in a way, they are used as a buffer, and in a way are a buffer state to the rest of England from Wales. Montgomery, in fact, becomes created as an Earl of Shrewsbury, which had been a key Saxon stronghold against the Welsh invasions in the past, and it was the one-time seat of the crown of Powys, but had since the 9th century been a part of the defense against the northern Welsh kingdoms. In 1067, as the Normans began to run into resistance by Saxon nobles, Blethyn ap Kivin 
king of Gwyneth, allies himself with Edric the Wild, the Saxon landholder of Mercia, the so-called stylized Earl of Mercia. The Mercians and the Welsh, of course, had fought each other on numerous occasions, which we've chronicled here before, but they've also allied several times over that same period. There have been times when the kings of Gwyneth and the kings of Mercia actually used each other to try and benefit themselves. They also would trade off territory and influence to try and keep the other one happy and keep them on board. As we know from what happened after the death of Alfred, we know that there was this trade-off of control over certain areas in Wales to try and increase the influence that the sons of Rodri and their grand and their sons had on the rest of Wales other than areas of Mercian dominance and control. So this is not an unfamiliar thing. Also, we know from the last episode and, and many before that, that the Welsh were trying to consistently be involved in the English debate and battle over who should be the king, and in fact allied themselves with the North and with Harold at different times and at different places, but never really allied themselves with the Normans. And so thus, they saw common cause with these people, and I'm sure must have figured that if they could rile them up enough, they could weaken England enough that it might either split back into separate states again, or fall back into chaos, or even better, set up somebody more... If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
judged as being friendly to their needs and interests. And that's certainly something that we'll see go on quite often within the Welsh community and within the English community in influencing each other and how they dealt with each other throughout this medieval period. And certainly you have to keep that in mind that both sides were anxious to get the other under control, so to speak. So as this continues in Powys, Blethyn's brother, Ridwallen, uh, was the first to send troops to help their ally. Um, as you can imagine, the Normans, not best pleased by the resistance, marched and sent Adric packing. And it is at this stage that the castle of Chepstow has actually begun construction, and Fitzosborne takes command in the south. He's actually given the earldom of Wessex and as well as Hereford. So he has control of a wide area and is trusted by his king as he was considered a trusted advisor. The only problem they have is, of course, he dies in a couple of years. He dies in 1071 after returning to France. And his son, who will succeed him, is not as loyal to the crown. And that leads to further problems for William down the road. Um, and this becomes a general problem that William will have throughout his kingship is that as others succeed, there is this thought that, oh, maybe we should be the ones in charge. And there's a lot of disloyalty that, that comes about. There's the Earl's Rebellion that happens in 1069 that we're about to talk about. And it comes out of this sense that they're being affronted and offended by William and by probably his harsh terms and conditions. I mean, they talk about his treatment of the north of England as the harrowing of the north. He is consistently seen as a ruthless conqueror. He is not loved in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. The writers of the Chronicle, they acknowledge his success. They don't acknowledge their love or thought of his decency or godliness as they might some other kings down the road. Eventually, as William is dealing with the North and dealing with the problems that are up there, the Welsh and the Saxons once again finally decide to attack, and they decide this time to attack at Shrewsbury, and they attack the town, take the town, burn it to the ground, probably grabbing as much as they could in the process, and leaving the castle that was there uh, as they couldn't afford to sit down and besiege it so they left it and uh, then moved their way up to Cheshire and at this point they take up areas around there and this is when the Earl of Cheshire as he will be called Earl Hugh Hugh the Fat obviously not the most polite of names uh, takes up his position in that area because of this, he ends up defeating Erdrich. He defeats uh, Blethyn and, and his brother and in the process establishes the third marcher lordship on the borders of Wales and again starts to influence proceedings. They will become a complete and utter thorn in the side of the Welsh at this point. And in fact, Hugh will become a very problematic lord for the northern Welsh. He and his cousin Robert of Rudlin have been tasked with bringing the north to heel. They begin the process of dealing with these 
northern Welsh kings and trying to put an end to the way that they had been assisting the Saxon rebels and effectively become sort of a pain in the butt for the the kings of Gwyneth and their descendants. They will be a long and arduous problem for Powys especially and for Gwyneth as well. And we will see as time goes on how that affects the overall situation and state of the Welsh in this period. With the death of Fitzosborne and the rebellion of his son and the eventual having to deal with those kind of things, the march into the south slows for a little bit and it gives a bit of breathing room. At this point, there's only really three nations that we can talk about within Wales. There's Doithbarth, there's Gwyneth, and there's Powys. And those three are influencing everything that's going on. Powys and uh, Gwyneth, of course, being controlled by the two brothers. And then in the south, the heir of the Mervian throne, the leader of, I guess you could say, the Mervian house has continued to control the area in that period. But at the same time, even as Rhys Ap Tudor takes control and takes charge, he's still dealing with massive problems. Even as he gains more control, once again, Gwyneth continues to look south with eyes of taking control of the south and trying to take over full control of Wales once more. It, You know, this is a fairly classic situation that has gone on quite consistently throughout Welsh history. And we know generally this doesn't turn out great. And in this case, it doesn't for Blethyn, who himself, along his brother, had been killed earlier. And he had actually taken control of North Wales, thus was looking to expand south to try and continue that process and continue to take more and more control. But he himself instead finds himself at the wrong end of that deal. And uh, as he, in the end, in 1073 after basically having to deal with this continual encroachment by the Normans, is killed fighting King Rhys ap Owain of Dyfeth. And there is some discussion about him being betrayed, which leads to this whole thing. Um, but it's hard to say for sure. Uh, Blethyn's cousin, Treharim, uh, will actually kill... Uh, Reese in a battle in 1078 at the Battle of Goodwick, um, and it's seen as a time of revenge. Um, and then he himself is killed by Caradog Ap Griffith of Gwent, and all of this stuff sort of goes around and around and around. Um, all of this makes for a very confusing situation and a very troublesome situation. By the time that Griffith Ap Kynan finally gains control of Gwyneth in 1081, he's attempted this several times and continually has to flee back to Dublin and the protection that is given to him by the Irish there in order to save himself from being defeated. And it, by the time he finally gets control... The Normans are ready for him and they attack 
and take him captive. And in the end, having to deal with all of these problems, he still manages to maintain his kingdom even beyond this. And in the end, finally consolidates it until the 12th century. And that is a heck of a long time. Even though he has all these problems, he still seems to manage to grow out of it. And we're going to talk in further detail about this whole situation. But what we're focusing on now is the fact that what we're seeing is, is this Norman advancement followed by increasing internal conflict is creating opportunity for the Normans to continue to advance. We talked about how in the South things halted for a bit up till 1075. Well, that all comes to an end and we start to see the Normans push into the South. They start to seize land. They go after Quent initially, and then they continue to move further and further inland as they go. And they'll seize quite a lot of territory in the Southeast Basically, all of the area from the edge of Offa's, well, the edge of where Offa's dike might have been if it had gone the full length, um, out at the borders of Wessex and the old Gwent area, out to all the way over to Cardiff and all the way over to Swansea, and eventually they will sweep and control, for the most part, all of the south coast of Wales. And it happens in a very relatively short period of time. They are very aggressive when it comes to this. And they move forward quite quickly. And it's a, a frustrating process for the Welsh because there's no chance for them to fend them off. It doesn't seem to work when they do try. And what they're doing generally seems to lead to nothing successful. Of course, coming out of this, we have the establishment of the Norman castle structure, which initially starts in England, but now is spreading into Wales. And as the Normans move forward, they will continue to spread those castles. We have the Moton Bailey structure that exists in Cardiff today that you can go see that was constructed by Robert Fitzhamon. Robert, of course, is the Lord of Gloucester, and he, in a dispute with Recep Tudor, the king of Doithbarth at the time, in 1093, attacks and defeats him, and in the process, of course, seizes a massive amount of land. And included in that land is the area which we now call Cardiff, which receives its Moton Bailey Castle. And this keep was seen as a strategic strong point, as you can imagine, and it begins this whole process of trying to take over the Welsh and influencing and dominating the area. Basically, the Norman idea is, is that you move people out of their existence and their former situation and into a more Norman way of life. You will influence them culturally. You'll influence them, them in the language that you speak. Uh, we'll see this start to happen in Wales, and it'll start to happen even when the Welsh aren't necessarily uh, under the thumb of the English, as even amongst the gentry in Wales, there will be a movement to try and speak French. And so we will see this continual movement and influence by the way that the cultural standing of the Normans spreads into Wales. And the southern dominance that they create in the process, it, it's hard to imagine now, but in that period of time, up until then, 
we really didn't have the same structure of fortifications and hadn't really seen anything like it since Roman times. You know, what we think of as sort of being the, the castle-covered landscape of medieval England and, and medieval Wales are things that come about because of the Normans. They weren't really there before. There was fortifications, there were structures, there were castles made of wood um, and those kind of things. And in some cases, as we've talked about before in Gwent, for example, there was reuse of Roman areas and, and there was a Roman uh, administrative building that was used as a palace. So really the Welsh and the English as well really hadn't used the building structures that the, that the Normans had done. And the Normans bring this into Britain and it's something that's popularized across Europe. And it, of course, will go into places like uh, in the Crusades, we'll have all of these castle buildings going on in the Middle East. And it'll be a popular structure until, of course, the cannon is invented, which then overcomes the major issue of once you're in a castle, it's very difficult to take it unless you just sit there and siege them. Well, once you have a cannon and you can blow walls apart, that ability starts to cease to be an advantage. But at the time, these were sort of the the, the battleships or the the fortifications that were considered to be so devastating that people, you know, felt like once you got one of these up, you were pretty secure. And they weren't necessarily wrong. And so the Normans always used them as kind of the new mode and the new way of doing things. Now, would the Saxons, would the Welsh, would the Scottish have done it without the Normans? In all likelihood, yes. Because like I said, this was something that was becoming important at the time in, in medieval Europe. And so as things happen and as fashions and, and cultural changes happen, you would see these type of weapons and type of fortifications entering into the use in Britain as well. But we look back now and say it's a Norman innovation because it's the Normans that bring it to Britain. But scholars these days don't necessarily give them credit for being the reason why these castles existed or, you know, they weren't the originators of this idea. It had become a return to these kind of fortifications that existed in Roman times in ways that hadn't been used at that point, but were becoming much more common during the medieval period. We, we look at some of this stuff, and, and I will honestly say we're colored greatly by the perspective of, this, of the Normans to their, their fellow travelers in Britain. And one of the people we'll talk about in the future is going to be Gerald of Wales, who is a Norman living in Wales and trying to tell the Normans about the Welsh. And his ideas about the, what the Welsh are, his ideas and descriptions of them, and his concept of them is colored completely by his own partisanship and his own bias. So within that, we have to understand that. We have to debrief ourselves from those kind of things. But it doesn't make it less interesting and less worthy of talk because this is a key window into what we see in Wales. It's one of the few documents we have of the people from an outsider's viewpoint at this point, and certainly it's a, it's a very interesting one. So we will talk a bit about him. Uh, we're going to go in much more detail about this continued movement by the Normans. But next time when we actually meet, we'll talk a little bit about the, uh, the laws of Huel the Good, 
I, I said for a while I was going to do this, and this is the perfect time because this is when these laws come into much sharper focus, when they're codified and and dignified as a law in Welsh history, and in some cases, of course, ridiculed for being laws in Wales by some others who are looking from the outside. So until next time, thank you all for listening. Thank you for making this podcast something I enjoy doing. And thank you for your comments and your questions and your advice. I look forward to them tremendously. Uh, if you'd like to contact me, you can always reach me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod. I do try and answer as quickly as possible. Sometimes if I miss something, it, it's don't take that as a slight. I just may have missed it. Um, and you can always reach me by email at welshhistorypodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to find out all the other things we do, you can visit distractionsmedia.com where we have all of our other podcasts, streaming, and everything else. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day. Bye. Edge of the Abyss Creations is a proud sponsor of the Welsh History Podcast, your one-stop shop for unique jewelry, paintings, and other crafty creations. You can find us at facebook.com slash edgeoftheabyss1. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more info, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.